Welcome to the STEC, the Public Procurement Podcast. Today we'll be talking about modification of construction contracts, a contract or procurement perspective. Welcome to Bestech, the Public Procurement Podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. So, quite an episode today again. There's uh, three of us again. Um, welcome, Ole, to the to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome, Marta. Hello, hello. That was a very formal way of doing this, right? So let's, go, <laughs> yeah. let's get started. At least all the listeners have gotten used to our, um, uh, rumbling. our, our, our rumbling and our voices. Um, and it's a pleasure, actually, to have uh, Ole here today. We're, we're talking to, uh, to Ole Hansen. He's a co-founder of the Center for Private uh, Governance, CEPRI, if I pronounce that correctly, uh, at the University of, of Copenhagen. And we're still recording on site here uh, today. Um, and he's conducting research um, within private law with a special focus on private actors undertaking public tasks. And we're talking to him today as a Danish construction law expert. I'm sure he, you do a lot more things, but that, that was the reason partially why we invited uh, you here today. Yes. So it's a pleasure, pleasure to have you. Um, and we'll be digging into a modification of, of construction contracts and we'll be looking at um, how EU public procurement law and the, the concept of modification uh, can sometimes cause tension with national uh, construction practices, but also construction uh, law. So that's what's on the menu for, for today's uh, episode. Um, and of course, we'll, we'll also be looking at uh, uh, dessert. I think dessert's a little bit different than what it is uh, normally today, but I'll leave that as a teaser. Um, so just to get you off to a good start, Ola, um of course, Marta and I agree that public procurement is the, the nemesis, the starting point, <laughs> the epicenter of the world. Um, but in your research on contract and construction law, is public procurement the, the entree, the main or the dessert? Or is it just an appetizer? Or, or something that you're trying to stay away as much as you can? <laughs> yeah, well, as, well, as for my sake, I've been um, I'm specialized in construction contract law. And of course, that's about how transactions between employers and contractors are entered into and carried through uh, during the construction process. And um, that leaves out the question of actually how, uh, what were the the pre-contractual um, aspects and what, what, what was the pre-contractual regulation? And, and this differs between naturally between uh, public entities and private entities where private entities, entities can enter into even major construction contracts uh, as they want to, whereas public entities underlie the procurement law regime. And it's the, the most tempting part for a construction contract lawyer is trying to avoid that question, whether there's actually an interplay between the procurement law rules, the public law rules, uh, and the contract law rules. But you can't really avoid it, can you? Because evidently, um, procurement law kind of frames or underlines the public contracts. So you, you have, a, 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 that's my opinion, you have to some extent to 
to consider whether there is, in fact, an interaction between uh, public procurement law and private law. It, it sounds like we're talking to someone that has had to come to terms with the fact that you have to deal with public procurement <laughs> law, whether you like it or not. Mm. I heard words of like, you can't avoid it, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> something like that. Uh, so that means that it's kind of maybe perhaps a, a side dish, but not often the most delicious side dish. No. Is, that a, is that a fair conclusion? If, if you uh, if you can leave it out and not order it, you you, <laughs> you probably you want to do that. Choose that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but um, at least from at least from a theoretical point of view, I think the practitioners, the the corporate lawyers, see it in another way. All right, thank you so much for that. Uh, let, let's we'll we'll see if we can make that dish a bit more tasty. I think during the episode, right? Um, so. Let's buckle down a bit more on content, um, but not before I um, actually introduce that a little bit in terms of the reason why we're here with the three of us today, because um, Marta and, and you, Ola, you're working on a research paper concerning the, the intersection between construction law, contract modification and uh, procurement law. And um, in today's episode, we'll be highlighting some of those topics that you'll be addressing in the paper. And uh, so it's kind of like a teaser, right? It's more the, the appetizer, a teaser to whatever uh, will come in the future. And on top of that, it's also, I think, a, a lead up to a project that that Marta is leading, the, the Purple Project, which I'm also in, involved in Ole as well. Um, uh, so perhaps why this topic? Like maybe we can talk about relevance a little bit. Why did you start this this research paper and why are we... Oh, with the three of us endeavoring on this uh, this bigger research project. So um, to give you context, Purple is Purchase Power Sustainable Public Procurement Through Private Law Enforcement. That's sort of the... Oh, that was in one go. That was like <laughs> a long name. But to be honest, to be very honest, the idea for this came out of our many, many conversation uh, with Ole over the years that we had chance to collaborate. And we always, uh, so, so to speak, buckle heads a little bit in a very obviously friendly way, but pointing out that the contract seems to be such a defining moment because we care so much about what happens before the contract. Ola cares very much what happens after the contract. And then we time and time again, starting with our first uh, research project with Professor Steen Träume and our first publication, that we really saw that there is many, many aspects between private law and, 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 and procurement law that somehow are in conflict and are not really um, researched. And that led to, to uh, us being able to obtain the funding for this project, and that's what we're working on going forward. And then also having you, of course, um, Willem, because Netherlands is uh, having uh, the same approach, which is that the public contract is regulated by private law after the contract is conducted. So that gives you a lot of context, I think, for our today podcast, but also going forward, because it is just first, it's just to kind of get everyone interested in what we will be doing for the next two, three years. And there will be many, many more on, well, how all this process, pre-contractual process impacts and how it can impact and what are also the limitation of what you can do in the post-contractual stage when, when private contract law rules um, the legal framework. But that is a broad context uh, of, of the project. 
Well, it's, it's a project that I'm very excited to be a part of. One, because I think it's it's so fundamental, right? It's a bit of a, well, I wouldn't say traditional because that starts to sound boring, but like it's this EU law focus and the influence of EU law on national practices, right? And on national law. So there's really that dynamic there, but also because it leads to real world problems, right? There's, there's problems that come up in construction sites where you bump into, and I think that's also where the, the, the not so tasty side dish introduction uh, <laughs> from Ole came from. Um, so yeah, Let's see. So, like I said, a bit of a teaser today, we'll be talking about modification of contracts um, and particularly focusing on the Danish construction context. But I'm sure actually for those tuning in from other jurisdictions, from Europe or from all over the world, that these issues would arise uh, on in, in other member states as well. And I, f- I know for sure that they arise in the Netherlands as well. So if that's a, if that's a setup for, for other countries and relevance. Um, uh, Let perhaps. us know. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's move on to our main. Yes. Uh, contract modifications under the public procurement rules. Of course, we've we've talked about it a bit prior to recording, but let's get our listeners in tune as well. We're talking about modification of contract. We're in the we start in the directive, and maybe I can pass it to you then, Mark. Sure. So I will uh, lay down the couple words in couple words the regulatory perspective of procurement, and then we will. Uh, ask Ole to tell us what is really the problem in practice and what are his thoughts on 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 this on this uh, conflict somehow this this tumultuous relationship uh, so the modification of contracts are regulated under article 72 of the classic directive and we know from 72 um, which codifies broadly Pressetex case and finfrogne to a certain extent that um Opportunity of modifying public contracts without the need to retender are fairly limited. We got catalog of modifications that are defined as non-substantial, and this this ones are the one uh, related to existence of a very clear and unequivocal. That's a difficult word in English. Uh, clause, review clause. Uh, we need some additional work or services or supplies from the original contractor. And there are terms and conditions where we need to uh, f- uh, fulfill. We also have the force majeure. We have the so-called de minimis change, uh, specific circumstances for the change of the contractor. And I think those are all, if I remember correctly. And then we have the paragraph four of the Article 72, which is a codification of Pressetex and specifically gives us a definition of what is a material change. Um, so this is the space uh, in which we are existing, ultimately leading to the fact that there is a fairly limited um, opportunity to modify contracts without the need of the retendering. And all I tell us from your um, perspective, from your experience, you also have a very broad experience of collaborating with practitioners. So where this becomes a problem when we're looking at the long, complex construction contracts and this modification, um, you were mentioning to us some examples before we started recording. Maybe you could bring them on, on, on the record. Yeah, well, I mean, in construction practices, modifications are not a question of if if they uh, arise or the need for them arise. It's it's a it's a fact. I mean, in all complex con- construction cases, there are plenty of modifications uh, agreed to on on the way during the contract period, and that's not uh, that not, that's not 
unusual nor problematic because I think that in, in the current standard contract terms used, it's, a, it's a, in Denmark, they're called uh, AB18, uh, Standard Conti- Conditions for Construction. There, there are clauses which um, anticipate the need for uh, variations underway, both for extra payment to the contractor and extra time, all under specific circumstances stated within the contract. So in, in as long as we are um, operating under these terms, I think it's fair to assume that, or I think theory, at least the contractual uh, contract, contract law theory in Denmark agrees that these, when we are operating under these uh, variation clauses in the standard contract terms, we are in line with the procurement law rules. We are, we have then anticipated in within the contract a need for specific variations, and that's uh, perfectly all right. Uh, looking at it from procurement law view, so such variations, uh, it could be a claim for extra time because you need. You have been asked to do extra work, um, or a need, uh, or a need for payment for extra work. That's perfectly okay. The situations that we're interested in, in this uh, context, is actually where the employer uh, is tempted to give extra time or even extra money to the contractor uh, without a legal basis in the contract. And this sounds, of course, really if you're not acquainted with the with the situation in in uh, in big construction project projects, it sounds really odd. Why should the employer be interested in giving anything away? Well, often it occurs that it it, it might occur that a contractor has some sort of problem with um, delivering what he has promised to. For instance, the agreed time, and um, of course, the employer can choose to say, "Well, you have to deliver to 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 the agreed time, and if you're in delay, I will claim liquidated damages according in accordance with the contract." However, this might create even greater trouble for the contractor, and because of the money invested in the whole project, it might also lead to a major loss for the employer. Because if this specific contractor is in delay, he might delay other contractors and then kind of accumulating losses uh, down the supply chain and and losses which might be um, some that are bared by the, in the end, by the contractor. But if the contractor is unable to perform and the whole project is, is brought to a standstill, this will lead to considerable Losses. We know that from several construction scandals. So in some situations, the employee will be tempted or will be motivated to give extra time or even extra money in situations where he's in fact not obliged to or not clearly obliged to under the contract. And that's interesting. So we're talking about modifications that were not predicted in the review clause 
in the contract. Yes. So those would be the ones that would need to be assessed from procurement perspective through lens of this Article 72, right? Yeah. And we would need to consider, okay, if we do not have the review clause, is that change brought by unforeseeable circumstances? Is that a need for additional work or is that the minimum uh, change? Or we skip the one about changing a con uh, contractor because that's not with the scope of our interest. Mm -hmm. So this is also coming from a perspective of our conversations before, because from procurement law angle, we want to make sure that we are not giving a competitive advantage that if known at the beginning of tender process could potentially lead to the fact that someone else would win the contract, right? This is, this is where our objective comes from. But The perspective that you have, Olaf, from perspective, uh, lots of perspective in, in my line. Sorry, too many coffees in the morning. Um, but the lens that, Ola, you look at it is uh, contract law. And up here also there is this uh, concept, uh, the Nordic concept of loyalty, which is similar to the general concept of good faith in a, in a civil law uh, contract. Mm. So can you show us, uh, can you uh, tell us a, in a couple words, how this clashes, this concept of loyalty, what we're focusing on and how this is different or might be problematic from a procurement law perspective? Yes, I'll try at least. Uh, I mean, the, the, the principle of loyalty, uh, contractual loyalty is, is deeply embedded in, in Nordic contract law. And I think it's, it, it uh, equivalates to general principles of, of, of good faith, uh, as we know it from at least civil law uh, nations. And, and, uh, The problem or, or the interesting part here is that in some situations, even where a contractor is in delay and due to his own fault, for example, or cannot simply perform what he has promised, you might be under a contractual obligation to help him. And if we take an example that you want to build a platform for a helicopter, um, perhaps you want to build it in uh, uh in Greenland or somewhere else where it's really cold. And it and, and you have in the in the in the design have you required a a, a certain uh, surface of this platform to be made with a what is it called? Canulate? Uh, cement. Cement. And it turns out that this specific cement is is not able to stand the uh, the conditions, the severe cold conditions where the platform is to be used. Uh, then the the contractor has a problem because he had has promised to to deliver, but he cannot. And in this situation, the employee cannot simply lean back and say, "Solve the problem." I don't I don't care what you do, just solve the problem. Um, he needs to, according to a basic principle of loyalty, invest at least some time in trying to figure out whether you can change the design so that it's actually possible for the constructor to deliver uh, as soon as possible. He, so he needs to take active steps. And those active, active, active steps are really hard to determine in advance. It's, it's all a concrete assessment in the, in the given situation, looking at the values at stakes at stake, the risk of the whole project being brought, brought to a standstill. And, of course, uh, what 
what are needed, what is actually needed to solve the problem, how much time and in that case also money is the employer needed, uh, does he need to invest to help to solve the problem? Um, it's, it's fairly difficult, but in this way, you can say that in the deep structures of, 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 of uh, contract law, you'll find legal principles which actually make it an obligation for the employee to, to help the contractor. Mm-hmm. And this is this is interesting because from perspective of procurement law, and I would be very keen on hearing your comment on this, Ola. From perspective of procurement law, we will say, well, but you should have figured it out at the very beginning, right? It's your technical specification or your tender. How? What is it to be used? You didn't conduct your due diligence. It's it's problematic from perspective of modification because let's say I think in our discussions previously although we were giving this example of all oh, some sort of sustainable let's say cement that needs to be used that then later on you realize or oh, it cannot be used due to uh, let's say this weather conditions or, weather conditions, yeah. or there is some issue with supply chain etc etc but functionality wise it would perform, the other cement would perform its function. Can you change that? And from procurement law perspective, uh, the Presitex case provide us with this limitation on the modification because it says, well, if that change would be known from the very beginning, it might have attracted other competitors to bid. Someone else actually could have win the contract. And from that perspective, or even we could maybe even argue that some of these elements change the overall nature of the contract. So we look at it as a change that is not allowed or put or has a risk of not being allowed from a procurement law perspective. Mm-hmm. And I wonder when you look on the contract um, disregarding sort of the procurement element, but isn't there also an argument used of this, well, certain care has not been put into drafting of that contract or investigating what really is needed for that project to be carried on. For example, you know, from procurement perspective, we, you should, we should have checked and it should be known that particular type of material would not be performing, mm. let's say, in those conditions. And I wonder how that mm. logic uh, yeah. exists in, 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 in your world. But actually, it does not. I mean, mm-hmm. when we're talking about this basic basic principle of loyalty, the duty to help your uh, uh, contractual partner in a situation which is very problematic for him or her. I mean, in this situation, we don't care about whether the contractor is in fault or if he could foresee the situation. It applies to all situations where he there's a risk that he cannot fulfill, and you could spending not to uh, spending uh, a, a small amount of resources actually help him out change the terms of the contract to make him fulfill the overall aim of the project so how does this because i think it's a fascinating concept this this concept of loyalty also if I look at reasonableness and fairness or good faith, I think that's how we translate redelijkheid and billigheid in the Dutch uh, Dutch context. Um, but what is that? So how does it, because I understand the, the, the way you've explained it is there's a need to help yeah. each other out, right? Yeah. We're in a contractual relationship, we're in it yes. together kind of. But so say you would take this to court. What, is, what do courts do with this in terms of like, 
this principle of loyalty and how far do you actually yeah. need to go in terms of because I, I would say that a contractor that was supposed to build that helicopter platform of course he, he or she would say yeah well I mean you needed to help us more we needed more funds we could have never anticipated that mm. you know it would have been it would have gone minus 80 right you know minus yeah. 10 would have been fine but like so that's why our sustainable concrete just doesn't work so how does that play out in terms of the intensity of the help required and on the other hand you know, as the other side of the coin, when we are protected as one of the contractual side, that someone else are just taking us for the right, so to speak. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's just someone is sort of abusing the notion saying, oh, I just need yeah. more help. I need more money continuously. Yeah. Where are these sort of borders yeah. legally uh, that's, land? Uh, of course, extremely difficult. You got the court cases on this um, from the Danish uh, arbitration court for construction cases. And... Uh, Basically, the, the, the whole principle of loyalty, the reason for its importance in this area of law is the investments involved. I mean, the investments in major construction projects are so significant that you you have to, if, if those investments are threatened because of a minor problem, a minor detail in the design, for instance, then you, as an employer, uh, as, as the employee, you will have to uh, invest um, a fair amount of time to help the contractor solve it. And it's 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 of course a very a very restrictive assessment. I mean, it's not like the employer can. If the contractor can come anytime and say, "Well, I just this is getting difficult for me. I need I need you to help me out, change the conditions so that I can actually fulfill the contract." Of course, this is a question of a uh, it's a very very restrictive assessment, but it's there, and and and, and uh, there must be a proportionality between the resources spent by the employee and what is actually secured here at the overall level. So here, actually, we're bringing it back a little bit to the logic that I think we can also apply in context of public procurement, because proportionality being also one of the principles, but also this notion of what Ola is mentioning about investment and the economic element of it um, being extremely important. Because if we look at the majority of national procurement acts, so if we go level below the EU, Usually as an objective of public procurement, obviously the open competition and internal market elements are there, but also efficient spending of the money or the well-known achievement of value for money is usually also included. So those will be a similar consideration that would be uh, tied into it. So I think that this is very, very interesting in that lens. I'm just coming up with another quite interesting example of this, and it goes not to the variations, but to the um, uh, remedies of breach uh, under construction contract law. And, it, and the example is fairly simple. If you, if you are obliged to construct something and there's a detail which is not working, there's definitely, definitely uh, a defect in the, in, the, in the works, then the main principle is that the contractor is obliged to remedy it go out and fix it. But this uh, obligation is sometimes modified if the costs to remedy uh, the defect 
they um, they are considerably higher than the value of the uh, actual uh, defect to the employee. So an example is if the defect is of merely um, it's just about the looks of a building of the on, on the design, whereas as it doesn't affect the functionality at all, then the court might say, well, there's definitely a defect, but you're not obliged contractor to go out and fix it uh, because that would cost you so much money compared to the actual benefit for the it's exactly the same principle actually underlying here. Very interesting. So in some situations under construction law, an employee, though he has clear cut terms, he cannot actually enforce them. That's a really interesting example, I think. So, so thank you for adding that. Just to, because I'd like to also get to uh, the reciprocity discussion, because okay. I think it's also very important in this in this debate. But when we look at loyalty, <laughs> it really, I think, what I take from it is it, it, we we have conflicting obligations. You have the obligation to be loyal in a contractual relationship on the Danish national boots on the ground level, but perhaps you cannot fulfill that obligation because you're limited by EU law, right? And I think that's a very interesting example. So I look forward to, to your future thoughts on that in the paper that you're writing. Um, but we had highlighted two, right? We said we would do loyalty and reciprocity. So in what way does reciprocity play a role in this in this discussion that we're having today? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, what, what we... Uh, <laughs> I hope I only what ask good questions. Stumbling over, or we've been stumbling over as construction contract lawyers is this de minimis rule which allows modifications which are under 15% of the value of the contract. And uh, that led us to the question whether it's in, it's in fact so that this uh, de minimis rule gives the employee a possibility to waive obligations, uh, waive the, the con- uh, contractor's obligations up to a value of, of 15% or 14.9%. Or in other words, put it in other, other words, words, if we are under the 15%, can the employee, employer then simply give away obligations or give away values to the contractor say, you're not uh, obliged to uh, fulfill 15% of your contract, either whether it's in the, the value of the works or it's a value of the time invested. But um, those are things that are originally predicted in a contract, right? And you yeah. waive those. Yeah. yeah. So it's again, it's important to underline because we're not talking about something that has not been in the contract. And we're thinking, can there be a change that is covered by the minimus? But we're talking about circumstances. There is an obligation that from the beginning was in the draft of the yeah. public contract and was included in public contract. So we right now changing that bit. Yeah. And the question yeah. is whether the minimus could be something that allows it. Yeah. What I'm wondering is whether, because if you give away something, it's, it's no longer a contract, it's a gift, right? So I would think that, uh, to as a starting point, at least I, I would assume that even if you ask for a variation which is less than 15%, you have to have something in return. That's the principle of reciprocity, because if you don't, then it's a gift and uh, not a contract anymore. It lies outside the scope of the contract, outside the deal which was originally 
entered into. What could be an example? Yeah, so we the, could waive the, deadline, yeah, the, the, I guess, The right? best example is that uh, a contractor, because he has problems with his supply chain, gets in delay. He doesn't get the, the material or the people he needs, uh, on, uh, needs on site to fulfill his obligations. So he's delayed, say, a month in a major construction contract. And what he does is he claims for time extension, but the imp uh, employer evaluates his claim and says, well, you don't have that right because the reason for your delay is that you didn't get the people on site that you needed or you didn't have the machinery in place. So that was your risk that it was there. That's, of course, the looking at it from purely legal perspective. However, in some situations, because there's, uh, because there's a, a major investment at stake, an employer would actually choose to, um, to give time extension, extension without a, re a reason for it, a legal reason for it, and even to waive uh, the employer's right for right to uh, liquidated damages. And, and this is simply uh, not a question of law. It's more a question of doing business in the way that you want to secure that your uh, contractor is not uh, going, to, going into bankruptcy, for instance, or getting... The job is done, get, right? Get, get the job done, avoiding... Uh, avoiding him getting into economic problems so he cannot pay his workers, cannot get the material and so on. You want to lend him a hand from a business perspective. So, And that's the reality, but I assume that the position will be very different from uh, uh, where a private employer will be able to do whatever he or she thinks is the right thing to secure the collaboration and the overall aim of the contract, whereas I would assume that the public entity would not, as a starting point, be allowed to give away something. Yeah, because we're really coming into this culpability of, of uh, the supplier, right, the contractor. And this is also the space which is, uh, which is very interesting, I think, something that I look forward to working with both of you on more. Because on the one hand side, as Ola mentioned, there's this need of a com realization of a commercial reality and the scale of the fault is also it varies right so of course on the most extreme level we are not from perspective of procurement allowing for a situation in which contractor bids really low wins the contract and then sort of cries wolf and say, oh, I need more time. I need this and that. I had problem with people and so on and so forth. Because from procurement perspective, we look at it, not our problem. You oblige yourself, you need to deal with it. But very, uh, very much the commercial reality also is what Ola is pointing out. And to what extent we can at some point say, well, that's, that's not a fault of a contractor. The contractor did not have, does not have a control over, let's say, its supply chain to such an extent. To what extent at some point we can say, well, this is unforeseeable circumstances. Mm -hmm. So if it is not culpable, can we then bring in the um, unforeseeable circumstances and the as an explanation and so and so forth. But there is a lot of space here to conduct more research and discuss that more that we're hoping to do in the upcoming two, three years. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you're seeing, saying here, Marcia, because this suggests that there actually is perhaps a very narrow space for it, but still a space for pursuing uh, more business-like aims within procurement law. 
uh, securing the values at stake. Because if there are situations where you, from a procurement law perspective, would say that, well, uh, the contractor hasn't performed as he promised, but it was not his fault, then there might be room to give away something to help him out and to secure the overall values at stake. Absolutely. And just to conclude that uh, that part of our podcast, I just want to point out that um, the controversial case here that really somehow guides us and, and limits of what we can do is really Finfrogner, which notabene have been a Dan- Danish case. And it's really interesting because that case in the first um, instance when it has been decided by the Danish um, Complaints Board for Public Procurement, the Complaints Board agreed that there was a need to um, settle the dispute under that contract and ultimately limit the scope of that contract. But at the same time, the case was later on appealed and the Danish Supreme Court um, issued a preliminary question to the Court of Justice. And Court of Justice ruling in Finfrogne, it's really... um, Limiting and it's controversial in many ways and it has been broadly discussed whether this is really a case that going forward in upcoming years we will see somehow limitation of its applicability. We will see that this was one off and, and um, that's it or whether it has a very broad application. And what I mean by that is that the criticism really came from practice saying this type of judgment, this type of logic and ruling is really disregarding the commercial reality of the of the of the situation of how those contracts look like. So we hope that with that we teased you into following the Purple Project and our work on interaction between public procurement law and private law. And I'm giving voice back to Willem. So we're up for dessert, I think. So it gets really tasty. Um whether we can say that there's a reciprocal relationship or loyalty towards dessert, I don't know, but let's uh, let's move towards that. I have one one final question, I think, to to close up this uh, podcast episode. And we didn't introduce it, we didn't title it because it's a bit of a different setting, right? With three of us, but because we only have Oli here for this episode, we were really uh, interested for you to. Uh, we were hoping you would dream a little, if you would uh, perhaps think out loud with us uh, and and. Maybe you could take on the role of legislator, of policymaker, of academic, or all of those, or of a higher being that would that might be able to tell us uh, what would you do if you had, uh, if you were responsible and you had the opportunity to change, say, one or two things in public procurement law, in practice, and of course, in your case, maybe we can broaden it a bit, right? We'll, we'll be kind, make it construction law. Um, uh, uh, what would you change? What would be, if you had had a free hand, what would be the, the thing that you would uh, uh, fix, perhaps? Well, that's a really difficult question. So, I mean, it's, and I, I need to first answer it in a very vague uh, way. I think that, in my view, uh, also in accordance with what I've done together with Marta earlier, the main problem is that the regulation of the pre-contractual phase in procurement law is based on terms that um, they, they they basically do not correspond or at least to, to a large extent, they do not correspond with the, st- the standard terms used in contract law. And that's peculiar because even from a procurement law perspective, one should, one should be aware 
that once the contract is entered into, it's governed by contract law and contract basic contract terms and principles. So that would be my wish. And of course, that's, uh, that would also to, 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 to take away the whole idea of a project. But, but if, if, if procurement law in the future could, could consider terminology uh, and consider to somehow align terminology on uh, the terms used in the pre-contractual phase and the, actually when the contract is performed, that would be that would solve some problems and, and clarify a lot of, of things. So does that mean ultimately that we need just just to follow up and then we'll really come to a close? But does that mean that we need another directive on the EU level or further alignment? So do we need a public procurement directive and a public contract directive after the contract has been signed? Well, I would say so, yes, because a lot of the looking at it from contract law perspective, a lot of the unclarity when it comes to this interaction between procurement law and contract law stems from the wording of, of, of the, the directives. So so if the procurement lawyers could please consider uh, to... to <laughs> are, you, are you taking note, Marta? <laughs> to, to, uh, to, uh, to consider that, that there's another system of rules governing the whole uh, setting uh, when once the contract is, is entered into, and it could be of, of great value if you could align your terms and and couple those uh, two uh, systems in a more clear way. That would that would definitely help out. But I but I, I think that it, it's not it's not like in the coming uh, in the near future. Well, let's hope not. Because we have right. some years. <laughs> we can work on that. Ola. Exactly. Um, <laughs> do we need to plug purple again? No. We no, won't I do think that. we're good. We're good. We're to good. Go. Um, I think we've come to the end of this uh, podcast episode, but not we won't close off before we thank uh, you Ole, for for your time and your uh, your availability to to record this with us today it was a pleasure a pleasure talking to you thanks and for joining us thank you for inviting me I, th- I think it's really interesting to be a part of this project i'm looking very much forward to to do it and to uh, finalize our coming article in particular yes. <laughs> happening you. soon I, I think the risky bit and then we'll come to a close is uh, is when you announce it on a podcast you really have to write <laughs> yeah, it, right? really to do it really it. Um, happen. so thank you so much to everyone for listening this was Bistec the Public Procurement Podcast this was Bistec the Public Procurement Podcast do you want to contribute to today's discussion then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter do you have an idea for a future episode write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.